most real estate mistakes, most people that are in a real estate pickle, it is downstream from something that was unbrokered or under brokered. So if you used your aunt Ethel to represent you in her only transaction of that year to purchase your house, and now you're upside down, or now there's a crack in your foundation, or now you can't sell your house because you didn't know that whatever was happening in the neighborhood, you hired a crappy agent. You're listening to the Real Estate Sessions podcast, and I'm your host, Bill Risser, Executive Vice President, Strategic Partnerships with Rate My Agent, a digital marketing platform designed to help great agents harness the power of verified reviews. For more information, head on over to RateMyAgent.com. Listen in as I interview industry leaders and get their stories and journeys to the world of real estate. Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode 293 of the Real Estate Sessions podcast. As always, thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you so much for telling a friend. Today, back to New York, back to the suburbs north of Manhattan. I am honored to be speaking with J. Philip Ferranda. We're going to call him Phil for short. He is the founder broker of J. Philip Real Estate based up in Westchester County, the Westchester Putnam area up, uh, like I said, the suburbs north of Manhattan. I've known Phil forever through social media, uh, through Facebook, through his blog, uh, someone I've followed uh, in the conversations that I'm involved with, with the people that, you know, kind of my sphere. And as an early blogger, that's that's a lot of those people are in that same kind of group. And so I'm really excited to get his story. Uh, I know he's a big sports fan, so you know what that means if you're a listener of the show. We might go there for a little while. Please uh, hang in there with us. And uh, let's get this thing started. Phil, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Look, you and I, I I mean, I've known you, it feels like I've known you through social media for a long time, right? We kind of hang in the same circles. Is that kind of a fair assessment? We do. We do. That is is for sure. Yeah. And so, um, first of all, my apologies for waiting this long to get you on the podcast. Uh, I should have had you on here earlier. I love talking to to the guys up in the Northeast. Um, There's just a different... I don't want to say attitude, but how about um, kind of a different... Uh, intensity. Is that a fair assessment? Just kind of thinking about what's happening. Well, well being from here, I, th- I think you're the guys with the, with the different intensity, but yeah, sure. I, I, I think, <laughs> I think we're, I think we're very different. I I've been made aware that I talk funny. Okay. Um, I have been aware that I uh, maybe lack certain filters that exist, say West of Pennsylvania. Yeah. <laughs> Way to throw the Philly guys under the bus. I love it. <laughs> yes. That's perfect. Um, all right. So let's, well, first of all, for those that don't know where you live, you're in the suburbs north of Manhattan. You're in Westchester County, which is kind of just right up the Hudson from uh, from Manhattan. Uh, and, and a mutual friend of ours, I think you know Joe Rand very well. Uh, I, I know Joe Rand quite well. Uh, we are bizarro versions of one each other. Did you know we were born on the exact same day? Wow. Did not know that. That's awesome. Same birthday in 1967. Both both um, born to nurses. If you didn't know that his mom was a nurse. Wow. Uh, my mom was a nurse. And we are bizarro versions of one another. He is a big, burly football player. I'm a, a dumpy little... Uh, former wrestler. Okay. He became an attorney. I became a real estate broker. He works for a, a large national franchise. Right. Uh, well, actually, not anymore. He's worked with a regional concern now. True. That he, but yeah. o- always been affiliated, and I've always been kind of an indie. 
So very, very different from each other. It is an episode of Seinfeld. It's awesome. <laughs> it's, it's just great. He coined this phrase on a blog he wrote a while ago, uh, Soma. Like you guys live mm. in Soma, right? Suburbs of Manhattan. Because he was yeah. a Manhattanite who hated leaving Manhattan. When when the family came, it was time to do the right thing, right? So, Well, he's a Rockland County boy. Uh, yeah. Don't let him fool yeah. you. He's, he's, uh, he's, he's, he grew up in Du Bois. And uh, <laughs> I also grew up in Du Bois. And, you know, we... Ossining specifically uh, is where Sing Sing Prison is. Mm. And among our claims to fame, uh, Martha Quinn of the uh, MTV VJ and yeah. um, Peter Frampton and all that, Sing Sing Prison. So the, the phrase up the river, which you may have seen in a lot of gangster movies, mm-hmm. was coined by Sing Sing Prison being up the river. Gotcha. And um, – Sing Sing is still there, and it is actually one of the most progressive institutions in the American penal system. They have TED Talks there. Wow. And on the premises is a large gymnasium that was given to the prison by, I believe, Warner Brothers in uh, in thanks for allowing them to have so many films there wow. uh, using uh, using the facility there and everything like that. So there's actually a lot of cool history about that. It's definitely a bizarro version of Rikers Island then, I would think. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it is a, it's still a prison. You know, it's yeah. still not a happy yeah. place. But, right. uh, you know, when people say, uh, don't you get a little nervous living outside a maximum security prison? I'm like, well, if you get out of the, the clink, would you hide in Ossining? <laughs> I think I'd get out of town. I think you'd be leaving. Yeah, you'd be. Yeah, I, th- I think I would, you know, go a little further somewhere. Yeah. Not here. Westchester, Putnam counties are they are they still close enough that people are commuting into the city? I apologize for my lack of uh, no big time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, okay. These are the bedroom counties of yeah. the city. In in reference to Joe's uh, uh, terminology yeah. is uh, soma. I like that very much. I've never used it. I, I don't think it it caught on. I'd love to see it catch on because it's kind of a cute sort of a thing. But those acronyms have always been a Manhattan thing. Yeah, and. Um, the the burbs and the city always have sort of well we're not like that so for the burbs to use a uh, a device that is used in the city would almost be like the city using a device that's used in the ver- burbs and that'll probably not happen yeah um but yeah we uh, distinguish each other between are you on the Hudson line are you on the New Haven line are you on the Harlem line uh, because of the train lines that go into and out of the city. And I never appreciated how great the rail lines were here and the mass transit until I went to other places and was just shocked by the traffic and like, why don't you build a train line? Yeah. <laughs> Lay down some tracks. It's, it's look, I grew up in San Diego, <laughs> moved to Phoenix. I'm now in St. Pete. There are zero train lines. Now they, they build cute little trolleys that run downtown, right? But uh, yeah, I've, I, my wife and I love to go to New York. We love the U.S. Open. We've been a few times, and the LIRR out of the city takes you right to the stadium, and it's there's no driving. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful thing. Yeah, yeah, it's very it's cool. Beautiful. Look, you're a New York guy, so I have to ask you this sports question. I ask every now. One time, I asked a guy, and he said, "Bill, I, I don't follow sports at all." I'm like, "That's cool, Michael. Don't I'm worry not about that it. guy." <laughs> so, so uh, Yankees, Mets, Giants, Jets, Knicks, Nets, Rangers, Islanders. And generally, if, if you pick one, I can almost pick the rest. But yeah, Yankees. 
your Yankees Yankees. all the way, right? So that means you're Giants. Giants, Knicks, Rangers. Okay, that's exactly what I – if you pick Yankees, that's the flow. So you grew Mm -hmm. up there, right? So you got to see some great times, great heyday. You were there for the heyday of the Knicks. You were a kid, but, hey, that was awesome. Yeah, that was a little before my – I was alive. Uh, I was respirating at the time, yes. Yeah. But uh, I was not cognizant of the, you know, Willis Reed and and the guts – that he showed or anything like that. I, I vaguely remember when, um, uh, not Walt Frazier, but, uh, uh, yeah, Walt Frazier, uh, was at the end and got traded to the, uh, Cleveland Cavaliers. That right. was, that was sort of the end of the era. I remember when Joe Namath was at the end, but I was not that I was not aware of their peaks. Gotcha. So how about the, uh, so for the Yankees for you, then I would imagine now you're a little older, right? When yeah. that run in the seventies happens with Billy Martin, mm-hmm. Reggie Jackson, that whole crew. That's my team. Unbelievable. Right. I Those think, are my uh, guys. Thurman Munson, who, you know, had yep. a, a, a tragic, uh, um, ending to his life really, uh, not, not just his career. Uh, and so yeah. I, I have to ask you the love affair that um, and it's it happens in Boston as well. I'm sorry to throw that word at you, <laughs> but the the, the love overlook. affair, <laughs> the love affair you have with those teams, it's so rich and so strong. And you know, obviously, um, when they're successful, it's even better, right? Yeah. So my team was the Thurman, Reggie Jackson, Ed Figueroa, Ron Guidry, nice '70s teams. And what was special about that was that they ended that decade in the desert where, you know, the last time they had been a good team was Mantle and Maris and Whitey Ford. That, and they were old timers. They were old guys, uh, long retired by the time I came up. And when they won it all in 77, when Reggie Jackson hit those three home runs, I remember I was 10 years old. My dad was out late, which was unusual. And my mom let me stay up late to watch the game. And I remember bopping in between the TV in the window to the driveway, the TV in the window to the driveway, and the TV in the window of the driveway, because I wanted to see them win before my dad got home and wanted me to go to bed. <laughs> and I think if my dad got home early, I think I would have lobbied him to stay up late because it was so special. Right. But I will never forget that. And I'll tell you, to this day, I'm 54 years old. When I'm watching baseball, especially when I watch my son be- watch, uh, play baseball, it's I'm 10 again. Wow. It is it is my it is my happy place big time. So the guy that doesn't follow sports, I'm not that guy. <laughs> let me let me. Uh, uh, I distinctly remember my first trip to. It was called San Diego Stadium. My first Padres game when I, where I grew up. Do you remember your first trip to Yankee Stadium? Yeah, May late May '77. Uh, they played the White Sox. The when Lou Pinello was introduced, the crowd went Lou, and I said to my brother, I thought I thought people liked. Lou Pinella. He yeah. said, they're not booing him. They're going Lou. That's great. I love that. You know, and then, you know, you had that great run when I, I was actually with the Padres working in the uh, ticket office in the late nineties. Um, that had to yep. be a lot of fun. Uh, the Jeter years, we'll call them. I don't know what else to call them or, or Rivera. You can have your, your pick of two of the sure, greatest. The Joe Torre years, you know, the, the, the dynasty, the, the nineties dynasty. Yeah. Um, uh, they, they've coined this phrase locally, the core four, which I think is, kind of baloney, hmm. which is there was a lot more than four and Bernie Williams was there too. Yep. So why, why make Bernie the fifth guy? I mean, that's, yeah. that's, you know, but yeah, they, they love, they love their uh, phrases. These guys Yeah. Uh, was a magical time. I have to admit though, 
I'm wondering, did Tony Gwynn's home run land yet? <laughs> Thanks for asking. <laughs> yeah, look, I was at that game. Um, the, the whole staff flew out to in 98 games. One and two were in Yankee Stadium, uh, old Yankee Stadium, which I'm so grateful for because I have been to new Yankee Stadium and it's really cool, but it's different. You know, it's, it's going to be different. And yeah, I know that, you know, he hit that home run. Uh, Greg Vaughn came up after him. They were up five, hit another one. It was five, two in the fifth. And, uh, look, I, Mark Langston struck out Tino Martinez. I know I saw it. I saw it over and over and over. I saw it too. Yeah. I saw and, it too. uh, of yeah. course the umpire didn't say so. And the umpire didn't say it. that's the, the next, problem. The next pitch was a grand slam home run and the game was over. And, uh, and you know, um, it, it it's just what it was. You know, I think Knobloch even went yard in that game and I have a, strong distaste for brocious <laughs> so there was you well, know, a that team. guy isn't he yeah i think so yeah and that that team yeah. was amazing I, there's no doubt there but uh you know they came back obviously in that game and ended up sweeping the padres and uh so we're over two in the world series and the yankees are 27 for something which is unbelievable 27 for 39 i believe wow that's impressive yeah, very yeah. cool. Very cool. I want to go a different round of of sports history for you. You went to Villanova in I the did. like mid to late eighties, and eighty five, eighty nine. Yep. Yeah, and there is there is arguably people call this the greatest uh, upset in college basketball history, and that was Villanova mm-hmm. beating Georgetown that that Georgetown team with Patrick Ewing in the finals in eighty five. Right, um, yeah. and I think it was the '84 season, but '85 was the '84 uh, '85 um, season. Yeah, '84 '85. So, yeah, you weren't. You weren't. Were you at Villanova by then, or were you just? No, I was a senior okay. in high school, rooting for St. John's. Okay. I'd applied to Villanova, and I got in. I got my acceptance letter the day they won. Okay, so they won that night. I was MIA from my house because I snuck out to a U2 concert at Madison Square Garden with friends. <laughs> nice. And I rolled into the house April 2nd, um, a little disheveled and a, a very angry, strict father. You know, remember, this is the guy that, you know, I was yeah. afraid he'd put me to bed. Right. And he opened my acceptance letter. Um, but it was an acceptance letter. So we were all happy. And and one of the things they put in there was, you know, choose your dorm. And my father said, we don't need to look at all these, you know, facts about the dorms or where they are. Let's just pick the one with the name closest to Feranda. So we picked Fedigan Hall, which was like an outhouse built in the early 1900s with closets about about as wide as, as, as you know, maybe eight inch deep closets where you had to put things in. You could hang maybe up to four shirts. Nice. And just it was just a rancid dump. And the, and I was in room 101 because I was the only idiot that asked for Fedigan Hall. <laughs> and that was the last it. time I asked my dad for housing advice. Okay. <laughs> I like that. T- t- tying it into real estate. That's great. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, you were, I, my guess is you weren't like a Villanova fan, but, um, but you became one as soon as you enrolled, right? Yeah. You get indoctrinated. Yeah, right. Exactly. So we, I was very much a St. John's guy because they were the local team. When the uh, upset occurred, if it's not one of the greatest upsets, because that Georgetown team was such a dynasty. Well, it was an expected dynasty with a once in a generation type player with um, Ewing who went on to become a Nick and, you know, talk about mixed feelings (laughs) and, that and that Villanova team was 
kind of a not the best team Roley had up until that point. But they went on a run that is difficult to uh, explain, duplicate. I mean, I don't know that we'll... That run has to be sort of likened to if you put a million chimpanzees in front of a typewriter, one of them will type a Shakespearean uh, play. This was about as close to something like that. The, the only eight seed, you know, they're the highest seed to ever win the championship. They, they were an eight seed and, and yeah. made it, you know, plenty have made the final four, but none have won at all. Um, so. But it speaks to belief though. They yeah. played, <clears throat> see, they were, they were not intimidated by the Hoyas. They were not intimidated by them because they had played them twice before, mm-hmm. took them to overtime, lost by two points in the other, in the other game. And they knew that they put their trousers on one leg at a time. One very long leg at a time. Yeah. And um, they believed they could. And I confidence is magic. And that's right there. So as much as I say that it's, you know, what an anomaly it was and everything like that, I do have to give credit to that squad for having pulled it off and, and you know, made it happen. Yeah. Uh, they get all the credit. I like the phrase confidence is magic, Phil. I have a feeling um, that that um, that that thing that you're processing there is going to apply to your real estate career as well. A little bit, slightly, <laughs> let's, little let's, foreshadowing there. Yeah, well done. Let's <laughs> let's talk about what's first for you out of out of school, because for most realtors and, and brokers and people that I talk to with success in the business, it's generally not real estate. Same same no. for you. No. So um, many discussions with my mom about what I would do when I grew up. Um, I studied liberal arts, thought maybe I would go into uh, writing or I would become a teacher or maybe go to graduate school and become a clinical psychologist, all of those things. And I saw my, I was, I'm the fourth of four. I'm a change in life baby. Two of my brothers were teenagers when I was born. So I had brothers in their thirties when I was uh, first entered the workforce and I wanted to get to work. I wanted to start making money. It was the eighties. And I got, uh, my first job was for educational aids publishing company in Clifton, New Jersey. It is mm-hmm. defunct now. And their business model was to sell supplemental programs to Catholic schools. So you don't know this about me, but I went to Catholic school right up through my baccalaureate. Okay. And so what do I do for a living? I talk to penguins. I'm, I'm, I'm calling on <laughs> elementary school principals, mostly nuns, right, um, to pitch our program to their school. Wow! And I did it for six and a half, seven years. My college roommate worked. Uh, his father was a real estate broker in Rochester, and he had recruited me for years. You know, you gotta, you gotta do this. Come up to Rochester, come sell real estate with me. I resisted it because it sounded like the punchline of a joke. I mean, my mother saying, well, my fourth son sells real estate in Rochester. That just sounds like the punchline of a very sad joke. Yeah. But I had been relocated so many times because I was a single guy. I, I lived in New Orleans. I lived in Boston. I lived in College Park, Maryland. I had three tours of duty, if you will, in Philadelphia. So I answered the phone on a landline back then on top of a moving box and uh, he offered me uh, a, a, an apartment and a $2,000 a month draw. It was 1996. Wow. And uh, you don't see draws in this business. Oh. And I was just so tired of moving that I decided I'd move up there. 
And I did. And I, I was up there for five years. It was great experience. I remember having thrown the idea of real estate at my mother. And she, oh, no, no, that's sales. You know, the average salesperson is like six foot two. She just read this in a book. <laughs> and that's like almost a foot taller than I'm five, three. Like okay. I said, I'm this, I'm this little, I was, I was a coxswain on the, on the Villanova rowing team. Oh, look, that's the best gig. And right? I think that's the best gig in college sports. <laughs> it, it is, it is, it is right up there. Cause you got a front row seat to all the action. Yeah. And what are you doing? The only physical stuff is you're pulling the rudder strings and, you know, by the way, you're, you're telling the guys where they are in the race and, right. but you know where you're going. Yeah. Uh, they don't. Yeah. And uh, you learn to make friends with big guys. Um, Smart. Yeah. So I took to it. I loved it. Mm. I loved it. It fit. It fit my ADD. Right. Yeah. I wasn't sitting behind a desk. I was talking to people. I was always doing something different. It was challenging and I loved it. And I did it for from 96 through middle of 2000 up there. I met my now ex-wife on the old AOL personals. Sure. And I moved back home. And uh, at that point, I decided to take a year off from the entire rat race because this looked like it was going to happen. I was going to get married and be domestic. So <clears throat> I took a year off and I bartended. Wow. Where, where is up, up in Westchester? Mm-hmm. Right. Harry's of Hartsdale. Nice. Steakhouse Oyster Bar. And I still do business with some of my best tippers. Wow. You know, I, I, I'll, 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 I'll throw this out to you. I've, if the number one job that successful realtors have had, I, you know, I, you, I always ask, what did, what did you do? But the number one, the most common response is you server bartender. They have that yeah. somewhere in their history because it so ties into what you do as a realtor, right? Talking to people, yeah. kind of figuring out what they need and, you know, trying to maybe also um, maybe move them in a direction you think they should, whatever it is. It's just amazing that that's yeah. number one. And number two is educator, but number one, server bartender. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. cool. And I, and I would think nurses up there too. We have it a is. lot of ex-nurses. It is. Yep. Right. Probably number three. Uh, mm-hmm. But the hospitality industry is the only industry, in my opinion, that can make real estate look like a, a walk in the park. Mm-hmm. It is. It is really hard to be on your feet. For 10, 11 hours, get home at 4 or 5 a.m., re- rinse, repeat, do it all again. Yeah. Uh, what I, but what I loved about it was the fact that you didn't take work home with you. I mean, you, you exchanged all your singles for 20s and tips. You went home. No one called you. You didn't worry if that, you know, the gimlet you made for the table 48 wasn't quite up to scratch. You didn't have those worries. Yeah. You know? No underwriter sent a, a drink back and said, you know, th- this does not have enough sour mix in it. Right. And it is not in compliance. That never occurred. Yeah. I love that. You, right. Um, th- there's, a, there's a touch of history for you in the mortgage world. You brought up, you brought up underwriters, so I'll, I'll bring that up. Sure. Absolutely. So, you know, you can't bartend forever. And I knew I had a, a family coming. We were in the um, fertility boot camp at this point. We were married about two weeks after 9-11. Wow. And uh, we started having babies like a Tommy gun. So uh, we had we had four kids in five years. And I thought, well, I can't bartend forever. And, you know, I was successful in real estate, but I was successful in real estate up in Rochester. 
And this is the sophisticated, erudite New York suburbs. Right. I don't know that I have the chops to make it in this. So I thought I would, I would acquiesce to my intimidation and maybe I'd go into mortgages, more nine to five, more family man kind of stuff. And I did mortgages for about five years. Okay. In 2001 through maybe the year after I'd started my firm. And what I learned as I did mortgages, aside from how to do mortgages, was that the real estate community was really no different in Westchester than it was upstate. As a matter of fact, I've now learned that the real estate community in Manhattan is no different. There's, there is no, there's, there's no, um, there's no market you can't break into if you follow best practices. So I did not pass go. I did not collect $200. I simply took the course, hung my shingle in 2005 and started the company. And of course, what'll we call it? Yeah, right? it's you have a very unique name. I'm, I'm curious. Uh, yeah. There's got to be a story behind that. A little bit. So my father's name was Joseph Ferranda. And technically, my name is Joseph Ferranda. His middle name was different than mine. My dad had wanted a Joseph. My mom had quite enough Josephs. So the compromise was that I would be named Joseph to assuage my dad. But I would go by my middle name, Philip, which was what my mom wanted. So J. Philip was the biggest pain in the neck name ever because this was the pre-computer age when I would not end up on my brother Jim's credit report by accident or whatever, or my brother Paul Joseph Ferranda's whatever getting mail for me. So um, I... uh, I've always had a pain in the neck name. Like I said, I went to Catholic school. They would first day of school, um, sister, Mary, whatever would say, you know, roll roll call, say, Joseph, Joseph, I wouldn't look up and I'd get in trouble. My first, so finally my mother started explaining to my teachers, he goes by his middle name. It's not Joseph PHJ Philip. So we're thinking about what to name the company and, and, um, you know, regional names were out because, I don't know. It just seemed like it would be constricting. It seemed like it would be limiting. Mm-hmm. And descriptive names seemed like a setup for broken pom- promises, like integrity real estate, for example. And I'm mm. sure there's a lot of great integrity real estates out there. But for me in that market, it just seemed like, why do you have to say that? Don't you already have integrity? Do you need, you know, right? So, you know, return the phone calls real estate didn't sound right. <laughs> Ferranda real estate didn't sound right. It sounded like I would like need to, you know, show up in a Camaro and a, and a, and a members only jacket. I, I just didn't think Ferranda would fly in erudite Westchester County. And I don't know if it was my wife at the time or me, but you know, what about Jay Phillip real estate? And it sounded Tony enough and it sounded suburban and, and, and patrician enough to actually maybe work. And it did. And I've actually gotten compliments about the name, which I'm glad. I, I'm glad it worked. And I have people call me Jay or Mr. Phillips sometimes. And I'm used to being called the wrong name all the time. So I don't care. Right. But uh, it's worked out. And sometimes branding uh, really does help. So that was a, a, a successful branding calculated risk. Yeah. Yeah. And look at you. Uh, 16 years into the business now. Something um, like that. When you started, it was just you. Just a solo entrepreneur, just getting it going. How many agents do you have at the brokerage now? Pretty close to 100, which 
to some people may sound impressive and to others that that's what they do their first quarter. They open their doors. Right. So I, I, I've learned to not be terribly impressed with myself, but yeah, it, it grew. I, I think the one ironic thing was that, you know, about 18 months after I opened my doors, the subprime crash occurred. Mm-hmm. So timing was rough. So 2007, I sold, I don't know, myself 60 something houses, which around here put me at the very, very top of the leaderboard. Mm-hmm. And there were a lot of people in the market who are like, who the hell are you and how are you cheating? And, um, that was fine. I wasn't worried about that, but then the market crashed and I created 2007 overhead with 2008 expenses and 2008 income rather. Um, and, uh, it was very dicey 2008, nine and 10. And for therapeutic purposes, I began to blog because that kept me sane and the blog, uh, work became like magic. I I know it made Jay Thompson's brand. Yep. It's made a lot of brands yep. and it helped me uh, because living in the burbs, we were close to all the news agencies, all the, all the, you know, we got on uh, ABC world news tonight. I would have been on a second time, but that was the day we recorded. That was the day the Fort hood shooting mm. took place. Gotcha. But every time I tied my shoes, like a big kid, every time I, did something right. I blogged about it. And every time I had a rant, I blogged about it and it, it got me a a little bit of a following and it, it it helped me recruit agents and it helped me create, um, a little bit more of an impression that we were a bigger brand than we actually were at the time. And, and you were, you know, early in this game. I mean, not as early as Jay, I think Jay was Oh five, but still to be there at Oh eight is that's, Blogging hadn't taken off yet. Uh, no, it, it, it was um, it was a fun thing. You know, my, my favorite blog was uh, Joe Ferrara, the Celsius blog. Sure, yep. And I, I got to meet him a number of times. And as a matter of fact, I'll tell you one of the nicest things anybody ever said to me. Joe called me. Um, we had met at some networking events. And um, he called me. He had a couple questions for me. And he said, keep doing what you're doing. Don't follow any rules. Just keep doing what you're doing. I, I enjoy it. And that coming from that guy yeah. was just like a mind-blowing compliment. With your blog, what you're doing is, I would imagine you're satisfying yourself. <laughs> you're writing about things you want to write about yeah. that happen to be important to other people. Is that is that a fair yeah, way of looking at it? Yeah, I struck a chord with plenty of people for plenty of different reasons, right? On plenty of different uh, subjects, yeah. Um, and and that was that was a, a it was. I, I wish I had done it more. I mean, I've got probably about fifteen hundred blog posts out there. I'm too busy to blog as much as I'd like to. I would like nothing more. And actually, we're starting to make some moves where I can do more stuff like that now. I so enjoyed it. I so enjoyed it. I, I liked editing it. I liked everything that went into crafting five good, four good paragraphs. Yeah. And um, I wrote a couple that that got some traction. Um, I wrote a few for Inman over the years as mm-hmm. well. Uh, not blog posts, but same thing, articles. Yep. And again, it helped build the brand. I never wanted to write a book. I never wanted to become a speaker. I never wanted to become a consultant. I never wanted to do anything other than real estate. But whatever I did, I did it to build the brand. That and I was a whore. 
I was a complete whore. I would, <laughs> I would. So we talk about Westchester and Putnam County. Yeah. But we have the Hudson Valley is a big place and we have Dutchess County and Rockland County and Orange County and Sullivan County and Ulster and Fairfield, Connecticut is right next door. So I got my Connecticut license and I started working everywhere that I possibly could where somebody, where anybody would talk to me because like I said, it, it was, there were some very established brands and in my own zip code, it, I figured it would take me 10 years to get 20% market share in my own zip code, but it would take me 10 days to get 1% market share in 20 zip codes. Ah, okay. And I remember getting a phone call from a guy and he said, look, I live in New Rochelle. I have a house in Rhinebeck, which is about hour and a half north. I stopped to get gas. I left my house in New Rochelle. I stopped to get gas in Yorktown. When I got to my house in Rhinebeck and I saw three of your signs on the way, my house, gas, Rhinebeck. How big are you? And it was me. And I remember looking over and I'm seeing, I think it was my daughter, you know, just in her diapers with a binky in her mouth, looking at me like, what? And I'm, I'm sitting at like a card table with a fax. And, um, well, uh, how big are we? We're growing. But we created the impression that we were bigger than we really were. Wow. That's like that's fantastic. That's like that's marketing yeah. one hundred and one. <laughs> right? yeah, it, it, it was. It I was. Love it. And, and, I love and as it. as we hired agents, we were able to cover things regionally a little bit better. And we still have a larger than normal footprint. And we still do not consider ourselves hyper local specialists for any one area. Okay. Um, and I've never had any regrets about that. I want to talk a little bit about Zillow with you. You. Um... You were on there. <laughs> What's that? I gasped. Isn't that what you're supposed to do? <laughs> yeah, that you're, was, you're right. It uh, was written to the code of ethics last year. You got, <gasps> whenever somebody says Zillow, you have to you, best practice. You served on the Zillow advisory board for, for a number of years. Um, Nine. Yeah. So, and you know, Jay Thompson was kind of the industry outreach guy. He was a, the ombudsman yeah. or uh, he, he, he had to handle social media for Zillow, which was a tough mm-hmm. job. Uh, yes. How did you, how did, so you're on the advisory board. You're one of, uh, you're early in, in that game. I imagine. Yeah, I was a you, charter members, 20 yeah. of us. So you, and you were yeah. also using their, their leads and I'm at, that's part of the business plan, I imagine. Yeah. Okay. So Zillow and I go way back. Yeah. So I was actually the first brokerage in my market to syndicate to Zillow ahead of everybody else. Uh, even the big national brands, wow. they did not syndicate to Zillow before I did. Okay. And I, I think that has something to do with how we survived the great crash because uh, we certainly didn't survive in spite of it. You know, that, right. that got us exposure and, and business commerce from it. So we started syndicating to Zillow 2006, seven. And when they rolled out premier agent in 2010, I was very heavily in the blogging world and I was watching Spencer Raskoff at the time engage with the doubters and the skeptics and the, and, and the, and the discussion. And I remember I wrote Spencer uh, an email in early 2012. And I said, look, I, I've, I like you guys. I've done business with you. I have no beef with you. Like I said, Bill, when you're the little guy, you make friends with the biggest kid in the playground and life's a lot easier. Mm-hmm. So I could be among the many of the, of the peanut gallery that was a doubter, or I could, uh, make friends with the big kid. And my thing was always make friends with the big kid. So I wrote Spencer an email, not expecting that he would answer. Um, 
saying, I think you're, I think you want to change your strategy a bit. Spencer's uh, strategy at that time was to tell people, if you don't put your listings on Zillow, you're not looking out for your client's best interest because of all of our traffic. And technically he was correct. Um, but I, I, I needed him to understand that it was more nuanced than that. So I gave him my thoughts and, you know, it was, it was, it was not what I would call a Jerry Maguire letter, but it was pretty close to it. Mm -hmm. And he wrote me back about four emails. The first three said, I haven't forgotten about you. I'm going to get back to you. I'm a little busy. Stay tuned. And the fourth letter was as long as my arm. And it copied in a lot of uh, the Zillow C-level people. And he addressed a lot of the concerns. And one of my concerns, for example, was in New York, we have co-ops. And Zillow at the time didn't have co-ops. They only had condos as a category. And Spencer, being a native New Yorker himself, I thought he should know that. And, and there should be a, uh, you know, a co-op category. Interestingly, I don't know if that influenced them buying Street Easy, but at the time yep. when they bought Street Easy, I thought that was like the Yankees buying Babe Ruth. I thought that was a smart thing to do. Yep. Smart move. So later on that year, I was asked to be on the advisory board. And I was very impressed at how curious they were about picking our brains. And they said, look, we are tech people in real estate, but you are real estate people who are tech savvy. We want to collaborate with you and do this right. So I knew the nature of these folks and I thought they were good people. I still do. And the uh, first few years of the advisory board, I thought we did quite good work. And when Zillow acquired Trulia and went public, the uh, rhetoric and the angst and the anger in the industry only grew. And my attitude had always been, you know, you have to evolve or die. You, you, you have to, you, you can't whine that your association needs to basically break antitrust laws to protect your business model. If you don't have a better value proposition, if it should, if, if it, if, if the truth can kill it, it needs to die. Hmm. Yeah. And that's a little harsh. But business is not kindergarten. Business is not everybody gets a participation trophy. Business is you eat what you kill. Business is you have to provide better value or you don't get the job. And um, I, I didn't like the subtext of people wanting to form a cartel to prevent transparency and to prevent the consumer getting what they wanted. And I got to give him credit, Bill. Before Zillow, you didn't see a lot of addresses on websites. Before Zillow, you had no idea how long a property had been on the market or its pricing history. The Zestimate for me was problematic only for the from the point of if a house is listed on the market, you probably shouldn't have a, a Zestimate for it because now there's been a CMA done. I couldn't sell them on that, but I my argument was there's no Craigslistimate. There's no New York Times in it, <laughs> all right? Yeah. So once, if you say you're an advertising platform, once you start, once we start advertising, your opinion of price, your algorithm should should be uh, paused. They didn't see it that way, but I, I don't know. Does when two when two people agree on everything, one of them is unnecessary. So yeah, 
recent changes by Zillow, you know, the fact that their data is not this amalgamum of all those different places that they were kind of compiling it that they had to work on. They now are getting true, pure MLS data from every, every state in the country. So they have a lot more accurate data. Um, and they're also brokerages in all those states. Mm-hmm. And it seems to be, you know, they've always said they were never there to compete with realtors. They were there to help consumers and connect consumers with realtors, right? Um, yep. But, but uh, this seems different. Mm-hmm. Well, I think in many states, they already had to have a brokerage license like Texas because they were a non-disclosure state. Right. Um, I still believe Zillow is one of the good guys. They wrapped up my tenure on the advisory board in uh, – 2020. That was my last year on the advisory board. All of their moves, all of their uh, changes, all of their disruptions uh, had moved brokers cheese. And, you know, I, Hmm. like I said, like I already said, you know, evolve or die. Yeah. Not being someone who goes out there a couple times a year and meets with their brain trust. Do I know exactly what's going on? But I've certainly no I've certainly seen Rich Barton at work and I think their numbers are better. We got switched over to their flex from their prior business model. So they went from market-based pricing where you bought uh space if you will, you bought exposure based on how much you were willing to spend supply and demand to the flex which is more like a referral fee model. And interestingly, that's probably the first time that they didn't invent something and that they took another model and mm. tried to adopt it. And I think overall, this, this is not just Zillow, but it's all of the referral fee models, you know, Realtor.com going with OpCity. Yep. I think the referral fee model at some point is going to eat itself. Because the uh, the thirty five percent referral fee, which we would pay under, for example, uh, a reload deal, that was a big chunk to to take out of your revenue. But if it was a reload deal, we're talking about these people have to buy this weekend. Yep, they're moving, they're getting transferred. They have to buy this weekend. They have to sell this month. So. When you're paying that much for basically an internet lead, which you may be incubating for a year or five years, if you're doing it right, right. that's going to have less efficacy. And for the agents that can really scale it and make it work on very, very large teams, I think that's fine. But I, I think Zillow is going to have to reinvent themselves again in order to stay ahead of the curve. And we'll see how it plays out. But I, I do believe they're the good guys. I do believe they're pro-consumer. I do believe they grasp the idea that your customers um, can't be customers if you've put them out of business. And I'm not really worried about them being brokers. I, I, I don't really, I don't care that they are brokers. I, they, when, they inter- when they rolled out Zillow offers, for mm-hmm. example, I thought that was a wise move because the, the, um, the iBuyers had been out there. Why not? You know, why not getting into flipping houses? It's a, it's a, it's a fine business model. It is an honorable way to do business. 
And when they said that they would have their own, their own licensees sell their own properties, I was fine with that too. You know why? Because they're their houses. They bought them. <laughs> it's their house. Who the hell are you to tell somebody who bought a house who they can hire to sell it? Right. right? Yeah. So if Zillow opened up a storefront on Pleasantville Road in Briarcliff and said, we're hiring agents and list your house with us. How is that different other than color scheme from any other uh, big publicly held concern going into business? We just have to do our job. This is about competition. It's about entrepreneurial risk. What are you afraid of? I've always said that every single one of those, you know, 120 million leads that are sold to realtors every year, that's, that's some agent who didn't take care of a customer, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, ultimately that's what we got to look back at. You, the, every listing lead out there had an agent who helped them buy that house. Yeah. The reason that they went off and looked online is because you weren't staying connected, right? I mean, that just seems so simple. Exactly. Yeah. The, the, it's, it's too easy to get into real estate. It's, it's, it's too, you, you can take in in the state of New York, you can take a 75 hour course and now you've got license to ruin someone's life (laughs) and having brokered, I don't know, Bill, how many short sales Mm -hmm. and how many, uh, foreclosures, bank owned foreclosures, having brokered hundreds it, it's clear to me that most real estate mistakes, most people that are in a real estate pickle, it is downstream from something that was unbrokered or underbrokered. Mm. So if you used your aunt Ethel to represent you in her only transaction of that year to purchase your house and now you're upside down or now there's a crack in your foundation or now you can't sell your house because you didn't know that whatever was happening in the neighborhood, you hired a crappy agent and it was the largest financial event of your life. Look in the mirror. That's not Zillow's fault. That's not um, my fault. That's not the industry's fault. You, you shouldn't have hired your aunt Ethel. You should have interviewed a better agent. Yeah. Bonus points for the Ethel reference. That's awesome. Um, (laughs) Let me, me, I'm going to switch gears here a bit. By the way, thank you. We're going over time, but I hope you're okay with this. This is amazing. Uh, I budgeted an hour. um, You know, it's all good. You served uh, as president on the Beverly Carter Foundation. And I've, yes. I've met Carl Carter. I've, we, we had Carl Carter when I was with Fidelity National Financial come in and speak to our, all of our escrow staff and sales Good staff. Um, talk about why that's so important. All right. So I'm going to have to give you a little history. In yep. 1998, I was called to a client's house. I had uh, gotten the listing based on uh, a, um, a hotline that I promised their house would be on so somebody could call the hotline and get a recorded message about their house, kind of like call-in talking house, if you will. And um, they called me to the house and they uh, said that a neighbor had called the hotline and didn't didn't get a call back. Well, you know, look, 
I'm not a guy to walk away from money. And I, I said, I, I, I don't have any record of that. Could we try it again? See if it, we, maybe there was a glitch. I don't know. Uh, but the guy pounded his fist on his kitchen table and lost it. And as I thought, okay, I, it's time for me to go. I took my bag and I started walking. He grabbed me uh, by the uh, backpack, which I had, spun me around and started wailing on me. Mm. Now I'm maybe 30. I'm not in bad shape. I'm not a big guy though. And I got out of there pretty roughed up, pretty, pretty freaked. And uh, immediately drove to the police station, got my sign back, withdrew the listing and became at that moment, someone who believed that agent safety was an under-discussed thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, Fast forward years later, uh, the guy that hired me, my old college roommate, had been beaten within an inch of his life at his own office by a guy hired by a uh, disgruntled investor who is an addict who he he needed plastic surgery to recover from that. So I started blogging uh, when Ashley Oakland was murdered. I started blogging about agent safety and I started uh, asking why associations are not talking about agent safety. And I, I figured that they weren't talking about agent safety because it wasn't, it was not a, a fundraiser. It didn't, wasn't a moneymaker, was not good for membership. I wrote an article for Inman entitled real estate agents have to stop meeting tra- uh, strangers alone in empty houses. I want to say a few weeks before Beverly Carter was tragically murdered. Wow. And that, I think the Beverly Carter uh, murder finally got the industry to realize that we need to protect ourselves. An accountant goes to work and comes home with every expectation that life is going to be fine. And I also, by the way, have lots of female agents and you don't necessarily have to get assaulted to realize that agent safety is a thing. Stalkers, weirdos. I mean, there was just some, something on Facebook very recently where an agent is texting with a guy and he's, he he shifts over to like, you know, really inappropriate comments about, about what she likes to wear or something like that. I don't really remember, but like, you know, and she fired him on the spot. So I'm at Inman, I want to say in 2015, 16, I don't, I don't recall exactly when. And um, <laughs> it's at one of Brad's parties and, you know, Brad can throw a good soiree. Yes, he can. And I'm, I, I am next to Carl Carter. And I ask him if he's an agent, he says he's a new agent. And I realize this is Beverly's son. And he got his license to turn what had been a unthinkable negative into a positive. And I, I had never been able to find a like-minded person who wanted to take time to, to do this. So he started the foundation. I was the uh, charter president of it. Um, I think the foundation does great work. We've got a fantastic board. Jay Thompson is on it. Dave Lagaz, who's a former NYPD, mm. uh, on there. We've got a great leadership team. Uh, could use more money like most nonprofits could. But the message is profoundly important. And prior to that, I had been on the NAR subject matter expert for the actual NAR safety. And the story I told you about the guy was in that course. 
So agent safety is, is a real big thing, not just from the point of view of getting home alive, but the point of view of, you know, going through your day without being harassed or targeted by weirdos and creepy people, not being stalked. And um, we put ourselves out there to the public and we're kind of sitting ducks. And it's, it's, uh, it's a thing that needs to be uh, addressed more. And um, uh, it is very near and dear to my heart for many, many reasons. Carl Carter is doing the work of the angels. And we need more people like him. And I wish I could go back in a time machine and change things. Right. But what he did to turn an unthinkable tragedy into a positive, I know he has saved lives. I completely agree. Um, amazing gentleman. I had him on the podcast. I'll put, I'll actually put a link to his episode in your show notes. I think it's important Good that man. people hear that, right? Yeah. And we'll also put a link to the Beverly Carter Foundation so they can go there as well if they want to uh, give. So I, yeah. I, I thank you for all that effort. Uh, that's, sure. that's amazing. Phil, it's, it's time for the same question I've asked every single guest on the show since Jay Thompson on episode one. Um, okay. So no pressure, but it's, I insist it be a unique answer. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what one piece of advice would you give a new agent just getting started in the business? Um, stay in touch with your database. Stay in touch with your past clients. You have uh, a past book of business. And what did we just talk about? Zillow and other agents, especially me, making a fortune on the elephant graveyard of other agents past clients that they didn't stay in touch with. And look, I'm as guilty as anybody else. I've gotten onto Facebook and seen past clients who were Facebook friends with me. Say, oh, you know, here are our keys. We've moved to Florida. And I'm thinking, you know, there is a referral fee and a listing that I missed out on because I did not have a, a mechanism by which I stayed in touch with them. Yeah. But when you do the hard work of, of prospecting and uh, incubating and and all of this work to form a relationship with a client that results in a transaction. And then there's no follow-up, no mechanisms to stay in touch, no mechanism to remain top of mind. You have basically wasted future efforts. You have, you have, you've written an FU letter to future you. Everything you do today is a love letter to future you. Hmm. And if, if you care about future you, then stay in touch with your past clients and your database, figure it out. It's been a big investment for our firm um, because we want agents to not feel that feeling. We want agents to have a snowball effect of all of their past work, having a cumulative result because they did a good job of staying in touch. So everything you do today is going to have consequences Everything you do today is going to determine what happens 90 days or a year or two years from now. So monetize your past successes. Simple as that. That would be my advice. I would have a lot more money in the bank if I did that. If I did it more earlier and better. Yeah. Phil, if somebody wants to reach out to you, what's the best way for them to do that? I have a very difficult email address. Um, it's jphilip at jphilip.net. There's one L in Philip, just the initial J, J Philip, like my name, at jphilip.net. 
If you accidentally wrote .com, it would still arrive in my inbox. But um, yeah, that's the that's the best way to reach me. Awesome, Phil. Th- this has been fantastic. I, I really uh, I really appreciate your time uh, because we like well, normally I, I do a half hour. I have a handful of episodes oh, that have boy. gone longer. Um, <laughs> one, one is somebody I think, you know, Mark Davison of thousand watts. Sure. Yeah. He's a great guy. And so I love storytellers. Uh, I, my podcast is definitely something that's out as a curiosity fix for me. And then I've just found a group of people who love to do the same thing. So thank you so much for, for opening up and letting us, uh, inside a little bit of your world. It, it was really wonderful. Uh, my pleasure. Very honored to be in the august body that you have interviewed. You got some editing ahead of you, fella. <laughs> Thanks, Phil. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Real Estate Sessions. Please head over to ratethispodcast.com forward slash RE Sessions to leave a review or a rating and subscribe to the Real Estate Sessions podcast at your favorite podcast listening app. Hey.